This is a HeadGum Podcast. Andrew. Craig. That's me. It's Craig. If you're overdue on adding another podcast to your listening queue, then I'd highly recommend checking out Missing Pages, the chart-topping and Signal award-winning podcast produced by the Podglomerate. While Missing Pages just returned for a brand new season, it has already received high praise from The Guardian, The Washington Post, or WAPO, and Podcast Review, just to name a few. And on this new season, host and acclaimed literary critic Beth Ann Patrick investigates the publishing industry's hot-button topics with the help of special guests like New York Times best-selling author Jody Picot and Publishers Weekly's Jim Milliot. And if you need somewhere to start, I'd recommend listening to their most recent episode about the landmark Department of Justice trial against Simon & Schuster and Penguin Random House. In the episode, Beth Ann explores the burning question, are publishers losing substantial power as industry gatekeepers? And so much more. So go ahead, listen to Missing Pages on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite listening app. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. You ever just <laughs> feel like the world is indifferent to your existence. Yes. And it's just so random. Uh-huh. And what are you even supposed to do out here? Is this the start of a better help ad or is this the po- this <laughs> is, is this the podcast? The podcast. Okay. <laughs> you know, this is going to be one of those episodes, Andrew, mm-hmm. I think, where we totally nail everything there is to say about a an acclaimed work of fiction. Yeah, and also the guy who wrote it. Yes, because I think this is 100% of everything we'll cover. Listen, in the next we have a whole self-imposed hour here to cover Literally everything there is to say about Albert Camus and The Stranger. Mm-hmm. I think we can do it. I think we're going to do it. Yeah. I don't see any. It's just always, It's sometimes you sit down and you're like, sometimes you sit down and you're like, I don't know how we're going to do it, but an hour from now it will have been done and <laughs> will be set for another week. Yeah. I have never, re- well, hmm, have I read Camus? I have. I think I read a bit of him in college in sure. English class, just like a smidge. And I think it was of this. I, I could be wrong. I read a, a stage adaptation of The Plague, uh, but I've not read the full book. And I, it's who knows, maybe I read a, another novel that he adapted for the stage because he did some other stage adaptations um, along the way. But this is my first time sitting down with old Al and mm-hmm. really digging into what he had to say. And it was yeah. something. <laughs> I, 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 in reading a little bit about like him and what he was up to, and you know, only getting some of it, it does seem like this work is an interesting. It's probably a good one to start with because it's his first novel, it's his first published novel. Yes, but maybe it doesn't have all of the things in it that he became kind of known for believing. Yeah, because he. This is part of a. So he, the, Albert Camus. 
Yeah. Cam, commu- how do you how do you want to commute? So the I listened to part of an audio book for this mm-hmm. one. I think Jonathan Davis was the narrator, uh, but some other guy was doing the wraparound stuff, and he kept saying commute. Uh, I think we can say Camus if we want and before or Al or That's Al, right. good old Al. Here's what here's the thing with here's the deal with Al. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when he he wrote uh, things in cycles, like okay. he liked to. Um, this uh, the stranger is part of. His first cycle, which is about the absurd, uh, mm. each cycle had what a novel and an essay and a play in it. Oh. Uh, he had a second cycle that was about uh, where did it rebellion. Is that rebellion? The re- yeah, yes, yeah. and then the third cycle is about love. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah, so this is this is the first one, and this he was writing it. It was published in 1942. He was writing and revising it in 1941. Um, and it was, you know, this is happening during a time of great upheaval in the world. Maybe World War II, maybe you've heard of it. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, and I think that that conflict uh, had a lot of, it, it changed the way a lot of people thought about a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so he didn't. Bold take. He, yeah, bold take about World War II is it changed the way people felt about stuff. But so he didn't, you know, he writes this cycle about the absurd and we'll talk about what that like. Yeah school of thought is but he didn't really revisit it much beyond that and sort of try to distance himself from it later on in his life probably maybe because it got like you know rolled into existentialism in a way he wasn't maybe super comfortable with he did not like being associated with existentialism he also really didn't like nihilism like it's it's so there are a couple of like high level explanations of what like absurd what it means when you say that something is absurd. Okay. Sure. Um, this is how it's defined by Camus, sometimes pal Jean Paul Sartre. 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 Who did love uh, this book, if I understand yeah. correctly. Mm-hmm. That which is meaningless, thus man's existence is absurd because his contingency finds no external justification. That's sure. what Sartre says. And so yeah, it is easy to see how somebody who's really into like thinking of life as absurd in that way it could get to lol nothing matters after that pretty fast <laughs> yeah sure but al doesn't al doesn't want to do that so we could talk about how he like threads that needle when we talk about the book yeah sure 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 yeah. sure mm-hmm. um but what do we need to know about him andrew what we need to know about him he was born in 1913 he died in 1960 a uh, big thing about his background is he was born in uh french algiers yeah like, yeah uh so this is an African country that was uh, colonized by France. He was part of a like he, he did. He was impo- He grew up impoverished, but he was still like a French citizen. He was like there, there was a it was like Blackfeet. I think yeah, the Pierre it, Noir. Yeah, 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 is how it translates into English. But this this class of people who are of European ancestry and li- but living in Algiers and yeah, so he's got that that uh privilege but also you know poverty thing mm-hmm, <laughs> happening mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh that, that's that's fun Col- colonialism is really fun don't you think when you really think about it when you really think about mm. it um he had tuberculosis as a child which interrupted his interest in football aka soccer <laughs> And also kept him from serving in the French army in World War II, though he did work, you know, he worked for like left wing papers and he was like associated with with various like resistance movements. Sure. Yep. Um, And then he died in a car accident in 1960. The uncompleted manuscript of his biography, The First Man, was found in the car. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Hmm. Yeah, that's was pretty, pretty nuts. And there's like a little monument in the in the town nearby where it was. Okay. 
Yeah, I saw that the the TB thing had interrupted his like academic pursuits multiple times. Like he mm-hmm. was in college, he had another bout of it, you know. Um, but then, yeah, he found himself in like working in like anti colonial newspapers. Um, there's one stint that he did in his 30s or in the 30s, I guess, um, for uh, an anti colonial newspaper where he was a court reporter, and I mm-hmm. that made some of the the trial section of this book make sense Makes that sense he had firsthand yeah. experience there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and what I could find on on the Algiers stuff for him, this book, there's you know readings of this book as a metaphor for you know French colonialism and the, and the treatment of people in Algiers who were not French. Um, it was a country and territory and region of the world he loved a lot because he grew up there Mm -hmm. and he did not care for colonialist policies but also like one take i saw was like he was hated on the right for critiquing the government too much and he was hated or disappointed the left for not like fully having the imagination for a, a totally independent algier yeah. And he also yeah. he also butted heads with the left because he did not care for the USSR like oh yes and, and, yes, yes, and yes that particular branch of like Stalinist and Marxist yeah for sure uh, government because he did not care for uh, totalitarianism uh, I can't imagine why somebody growing up and like somebody who's living in Europe in the 30s and 40s would would have anything bad to say about if that only kind of he'd gotten yeah. to play football maybe he would have loved totalitarianism yeah maybe maybe maybe. <laughs> uh, he did win the Nobel Prize in 1957. Yeah, he was the, for... at the time the second youngest guy to win it after Richard oh, Kipling. Yeah. Wow, okay, it's kind of neat. Uh, and what this his first novel, The Plague we mentioned, The Fall is another novel of his. Um, other works that are just in in my brain, The Myth of Sisyphus is I guess yes. the essay that comes along with this novel, yeah, right? That's the essay from the cycle. The play is called Caligula, which is about one of my fa- <laughs> one of my favorite. <laughs> emperors love to have a favorite emperor yeah though i don't i just don't it doesn't it's not as though it is uh produced a lot these days i don't don't think think. so yeah it's the basis for a 2006 german german language opera of course it is uh, yeah (laughs) but other than that it is yeah it's probably the least known thing in the cycle sure um i think the closing line of the myth of sisyphus if you go look it up is what I have seen floating around. The struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's the like, well, what does his life, what does his existence mean? Nothing. I guess he has to like, just kind of, fi- like it's not like you find meaning in the things you do. It's just yeah. like, enjoy the fact that there's no meaning. Just enjoy what's there instead. Enjoy being alive, basically. Yeah. Like yeah. The, the fact of existing. Um, quick before we take our break, I'll just point out, I read the translation by Matthew Ward, which was published in 1989. It is considered the first American translation of the novel. Yeah, there's some interesting translation stuff. It was, uh, the original translation was done by Stuart Gilbert Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, in 1946. Uh, so this was published both in, in England and in America, but the titles are different. So in, in Britain, this is called The Outsider. Yes. Uh, and that's because the publisher had just released another translated book as The Stranger. 
And so they changed it, but the American publisher had already typeset the manuscript with the with the old name, the stranger, and so they just didn't they just chose not to change it. I love it. And that that uh, the way it's labeled in each country is sort of stayed consistent because because of that even though, even though it's a stupid reason so good yeah um ward calls out uh two things in the in his translator's note worth mentioning he said that Camus employed quote an american method i think his i think that's Camus' words in the first half of the book you can really feel it it's a lot of like really precise short sentences reminds you a little bit of hemingway while you're reading it like it's mm-hmm. not uh, you're not inside the guy's head, just a bunch of stuff is happening. Uh-huh. Um, and he also talks about the trouble of translating it. He actually checks the Gilbert translation, points out this beat where a guy is standing there with his dog, and the French is, il était avec son chien. Uh, and Ward is like, he was with his dog. That's the mm-hmm. sentence. He was yeah. with his dog. And the British guy wrote, as usual, he had his dog with him. Uh-huh. And Ward's like, Let's not be British about it. Like the man was standing with his dog. The dog is basically his life partner. Like let's not graft on any other stuffy British meaning. Let's like just as, as usual. Or? As usual, he had his dog with him. He's just he's with his dog. That's yeah. all it is. Um, so a lot of what Ward does is try to like. He's not trying to con. What does he say? He's not trying to convey the meaning. He's trying to convey what uh, Kimmy wrote. And then you can get the meaning yourself. Um, yeah, and we'll talk I could about. See, I could see yeah. the benefits of being more explicitly like literal. Yes, in, in in this context where you're communicating like big ideas and the way that you're communicating them is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and we'll talk about the opening line of the book when we talk about the novel itself. But I think we should probably take a break, and then uh, let's get strange. Okay, let's get strange. Andrew, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You don't need to be an iconic misanthrope from French literature to know that the holidays are coming and they can be a rough time of year. (laughs) At a baseline, (laughs) there's just a lot to stress about, a lot that you maybe want to get right, maybe some people that you don't see too often and you kind of need to navigate those relationships. What's your favorite thing about the holiday season, Andrew? Uh, figuring out how to buy stuff for people without like uh, <laughs> without, upsetting them or yeah, or just like just like a good thing. Yeah, just buying a good thing for people. <laughs> the time I agree. It's like you wanted you want to get a good gift or you want uh, an event to go well, and the stakes feel really high, and, and that can be really stressful. Uh, the time of year can be a lot, and when you need a bright spot amid all that stress, something that can keep you grounded is talking to someone in therapy. I think therapy is a great tool for helping to set boundaries or to talk through issues that you might be having at work in a relationship. And sometimes all you need to know um, when you're trying to figure out how to move forward is that you have someone listening to you to help you think through the problem in front of you. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Conveniently, it's all online and can be suited to your schedule. Fill out the brief questionnaire, get matched with licensed therapists, and switch at any time for no charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash overdue today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash overdue. Craig, you and I aren't strangers to each other. We are not, in fact. But we're still probably strangers to a lot of people. Yeah. Out there, you know. Yeah. 
And you know, one great way to introduce yourself, make a great impression, Craig, you know what, is to have a great website. <laughs> and that's <laughs> I just and want that's to why walk we're glad. up to people and tell them about my great website, but I don't have one. Yeah, but that's why this podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. They're the website that helps you make websites, mm. make a good impression. Strangers is a friend you haven't met yet. <laughs> make a good website and, and make a good impression with Squarespace. I love it. They give you beautiful templates, drag and drop tools, and tons of easy to use things that you can make a great website with. Here are some things that we like about Squarespace. Do you hear that? The, the sound of water rushing down at you? It's the Fluid Engine, a next-generation website design system from Squarespace. It's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. Start with a best-in-class website template and customize every design detail with reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop or mobile. Squarespace also has powerful blogging tools you can use to share stories, photos, videos, and updates. Categorize, share, and schedule your posts to make your content work for you. And you can also use analytics insights to grow your business, learn where your site visits and sales are coming from, and analyze which channels are the most effective. Improve your website and build a marketing strategy based on your top keywords or most popular products and content. If all this sounds good to you, Craig, don't be a stranger. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. All right, Andrew. All right, Craig. Where do you want to start? With this one, you've read a little <laughs> bit about Camus. Maybe you're a little Camus curious. You mm -hmm. you know you're coming into this novel you haven't read that I'm going to tell you about. Mm -hmm. What questions do you have? Yeah, I mean, I know there are some characters in it. Yeah, um, I know that uh, his mom dies today or yesterday. He doesn't remember. Uh, yes, <laughs> and those. So where where do you think should we start with the the characters or should we start with the ideas, man? Who boy. Um, the ideas are interesting. Let's start with my rate. Oh. Hmm. When I was reading the book, I had ideas and then I realized <laughs> maybe they're not the ideas of the book. And then I had to wrestle with what the ideas of the book were. So maybe that's an interesting way to talk about it. So okay. maybe. Oh, boy. We'll never know till we start. I'm a little stressed out about talking about this book because I know it's important. And I, I was like, oh, I'm going to crack open this novel. It's important. And then, yeah. you know, you're reading an important novel going, where are the important parts? Yeah, like, what's important? And have I missed it? Did I miss the important I'm bits? a squirrel running around hunting for important acorns in this novel. Um, yeah. So the first line of the book, uh, Maman died today or yesterday, maybe. I don't know. I got a telegram from the home. Mother deceased. Funeral tomorrow. Faithfully yours. That doesn't mean anything. Maybe it was yesterday. That's the first paragraph of the book. Mm -hmm. There's a lot you can read about this first sentence um, because I believe in French it's aujourd'hui maman était mort or something like mort or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like today, mother died is is I think like a, a very literal translation. Well, and even even um, my understanding was that uh, Ward saying maman instead of yes. mother was. A big deal was yeah a point of contention um, because most of them translation. most of them do it mother and like the relationship with his mom is it's a sticking point in particular for the latter part of the book uh, so having this kind of affectionate but not entirely childlike 
version. It's kind of like saying mom, uh, but not or ma, but not quite the same. Ma. You know, it's mm-hmm. not quite the same. Um, and so him keeping it in the French does a whole lot of things. You can read. There's an interesting article in the New Yorker. Uh, I'm looking it up right now to make sure I can. Gra- Ryan Bloom from 2022 or 2012, excuse me. Lost in translation. Uh, what the first line of the stranger should be kind of breaks down why this choice by Ward is is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know worked for me. And he says Mama, and it's fine. Um, but you can get in that first graph. This guy's like, I don't know. My mom died. Um, okay, I don't remember when I got <laughs> the telegram. I guess that's going to change what I'm doing for the next few days. Yeah, so like, tell me which... So you could read a few things about his character into his reaction. This is Merceau, is the man's name, Merceau. Merceau, yes, to how he is responding to his mom dying. Like, doesn't seem like they were super close. Doesn't seem like he's super bothered by it or upset by it. Like, what what is he to be... Okay, he is a very indifferent person okay he is he kind of it's not even that he reads as cold he lives moment to moment he enjoys a nice cigarette enjoys having sex enjoys a comedic film and swimming huh um that's a good list that's a pretty good list of stuff (laughs) yeah but also he can feel really like uh, he can get really annoyed by weather that makes him uncomfortable. He can be very like, I don't know why you're talking to me about this. It doesn't matter. Uh, he doesn't feel real grief about his mother, at least as we might expect him to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sent her to this home like three years ago because, as he puts it, he didn't have the money to keep like her with him. Mm-hmm. And... They'd kind of just run out of things to say to each other. Like, that is his version of affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while she is at this home, she kind of builds up her a whole new life for herself. There's, like, a guy there that she becomes very good friends with. And so everybody refers to him as her fiancé. Mm-hmm. And he's like, ah, that's her life now. Like, that's good for her. I'm, I, I'm not part of that. It's, it's okay. Uh, and so he goes to this funeral and when he gets to the home they're like hey do you want to see her we, we closed up the casket but we can it'll take some time we can open it for you and he's like no don't worry about it and they're like okay so you're going to sit vigil for her right like that's the tradition you're going to sit overnight with her body and he's like yeah i'll do that do you want some coffee he's like yeah i'll have some coffee do you want a cigarette and he gives the caretaker a cigarette and smokes a cigarette with the guy um and then these other people come in who are her friends and they like sit there and they cry the whole time and this is where I am not quite sure what the book is doing yet, because I'm like, wow, what an interesting <laughs> depiction of like a version of grief where like uh, it's he's just shut down, like he's not right. experiencing it or mm-hmm. whatever, or like maybe he doesn't feel that much grief, and and society doesn't you know should expect not as much from him, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole journey of the funeral itself, he's like, they have to go on this long procession to this church. It's very hot outside. This nurse is like, hey, if you walk too fast, you'll get a sweat, and then you'll get a chill in the church. But if you walk too slow, you'll get sunstroke. That quote is like repeated, like cited a lot as the kind of like, LOL, nothing matters <laughs> of this novel. Uh-huh. Um, 
And so, yeah, it's not that he doesn't... Uh, I would hesitate to say he doesn't care for her, but it, he doesn't see the point in them having some sort of relationship that doesn't exist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody in the world seems to think that that is uh, wrong. Which, sure. I don't know. I don't know these people. It's, I mean, you know. it's not it's it's not the typical thing. It's like, I guess society could see it as wrong or deficient in some way. Like, that. that's my, just reading about the, yep. the book and what its deal is, that was my, like, high-level understanding about Merceau is, like, a lot of, a lot of what the novel is about is society sort of not knowing what to do with him or yep. sort of rejecting him, yep. you know, in a way. He seems very indifferent to everything, and his arc in the novel is coming to an understanding that it's not just him being indifferent to everyone else, it's that the universe is indifferent to him, uh-huh. and thus indifferent to everyone else. And so what if we all exist in this kind of silliness together? Okay. It's a really weird character arc that I had to think about a lot yeah. to understand. <laughs> um, because most of the time it's him just being like, I don't know, I didn't feel like doing it. Or I didn't see a reason not to do that. And then all of a sudden he's in prison and then all of a sudden he's on trial and then all of a sudden he's facing execution. We'll, we'll talk about how he gets yeah. there. Boy, that can that can sends me into a loop Real fast, though, is like the universe is indifferent to me, but also like why the universe is like thinking about me enough that it is indifferent to me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if he knows that. Th- that's an interesting way to think about it. Does the universe <laughs> think about me? Like do, do the universe lives rent free in our heads? Yeah. Because it's the universe and we can think about it. Uh-huh. But are we do we even register to the universe? The universe is always doing new stuff. Huh. You know, expanding outward all the time. It's always You're right. Stuff. Why would it be worried about us? It's true. Why would it think about us enough to be like, oh, I don't care about them? So when I was still in this like, oh, what an interesting portrait of grief <laughs> read of this book. <laughs> um, He goes to his mom's funeral. And then the very next day, he's still in that area, which is away from the city where he lives. And he's like, I guess I'm going to go for a swim. Sure. Uh. And he like bumps into a lady that he used to know from work that he had a crush on, and they kind of hook up and go to a movie together. Nice. Uh, Did that now? Are they going to a comedic film? Because they do go to a comedic film. To, I mean, if they smoke a cigarette in a pool after the (laughs) after the date, this is like all four of the things that he likes to do. I don't remember if he smokes a cigarette with her, but he does smoke (laughs) cigarettes near her. Uh, Her name is Marie, and she is a bit more earnest. Uh, I don't really, the novel does not really communicate what she might see in him mm-hmm. other than maybe, you know, he's good in bed. It doesn't really dwell on that, but like that must be what it is. I don't know. Sure. Um, and later on she starts talking about like, well, what if they get married and would you marry me? And he's like, I mean, if that's what you want, like his response is just very like, I mean, marriage is a thing people do. (laughs) If we should get married, if that would make you happy, I guess why not? Uh, Uh The thing that stood out to me in the like, wow, this is an interesting portrait of grief, but now I realize it's also absurdism. Um, He says, it occurred to me that anyway, one more Sunday was over that Maman was buried now that I was going back to work and that really nothing had changed. Yeah, I mean, I get like 
insofar as the universe doesn't care about any of that stuff. Exactly. Like you just, you just yes. got to go back. Not not even the universe, but just like society. Like Correct. You, you got you to go back to the churn. I know it's haha, nothing matters, but also I was like, wow, isn't it sad how life doesn't pause for your grief? Like that was, yeah. <laughs> that was my initial read. Uh-huh. So then we enter this part of the book where he's dating Marie and he has this he has this neighbor named Raymond or Raymond Raymond Ray um who says he works at a warehouse but everybody knows he's kind of a mean pimp okay uh, i mean it's a, like a lady warehouse no <laughs> no uh uh-uh. he is claiming to have a real like an actual like paycheck job and he does not have a paycheck job i see um he invites Merceau over for some now, Marceau has ever heard him like berating women in his apartment and being very mean to them. But Raymond's like, Why don't you come over? I've got some sausage and some wine. We can just hang out and you could be my pal. And Marceau's mm-hmm. response is, I tried my best to please Raymond because I didn't have any reason not to please him. Okay. <laughs> and one of the things that Raymond asks him to do is help him write a letter to this one girl that he's, you know, fighting with uh-huh. can, that would somehow entice her to come back to Raymond's apartment, um, both through, I think, a combination of, like, pleading and nagging. I'm, I don't really remember. <laughs> uh, and Marceau's like, I mean, I guess so, if you want. And when she arrives, Ray- Raymond beats her up, and then they call the cops. And okay. Raymond's like, hey, can you serve as a witness to say that, like, it wasn't that bad? And Marceau's like, I mean, I guess, whatever. Why not? Sure. This is <laughs> he's yep. just kind of drifting through. He is coming in in these in this situation that Eric's explaining. Like he comes to a conclusion that I think a lot of people would probably come to in that situation, but it's for a very different reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's he's very it, it's very strange. He's a strange guy. He's a stranger. He is say. in fact. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um and so uh, he and Raymond are becoming pals. He's dating Marie. Raymond's like, why don't you and Marie come with me on a little beach vacation? My friend Masson's house. Let's go hang out okay. there. Uh-huh. On this trip, there are two Arab men, one of whom is the brother of the girl that Raymond beat up. And they've been kind of following Raymond around. And they confront Raymond multiple times and at one point attack him with a knife and Ooh. cut him. And it's Uh bad. Okay. And so then a day or two later, they go back to the beach. Raymond has a gun in his pocket. And Marceau takes the gun from him so that nothing happens. And now he has a gun in his pocket. Mm -hmm. They go back to the house. Uh, At this point, Marceau is complaining about how hot it is again and how (laughs) it would be just as bad to go inside and deal with the women in the house as it would to stay outside in the hot, hot sun. So why don't I just stay outside in the hot, hot sun? Okay. He goes back and re-encounters the two uh, Arab men. And in the blinding sunlight and in the heat, he kind of can't see what's going on and thinks he sees the man draw a knife on him and shoots him. Okay. And then shoots him four more times on the ground. Okay. There is no explanation for why this happens. Other, uh-huh. th- I'm going to read to you. I had to go back and read this because like, I read this part of the book. Then I read a whole bunch of stuff about him being in prison. And I was like, why did he do this again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
The Arab drew his knife and held it up to me in the sun. The light shot off the steel, and it was like a long flashing blade cutting at my forehead. At the same instant, the sweat in my eyebrows dripped down over my eyelids all at once and covered them with a warm, thick film. My eyes were blinded behind the curtain of tears and salt. All I could feel were the symbols of sunlight crashing on my forehead and indistinctly the dazzling spear flying up from the knife in front of me. The scorching blade slashed at my eyelashes and stabbed at my stinging eyes. That's when everything began to reel. The sea carried up a thick, fiery breath. It seemed to me as if the sky split open from one end to the other to rain down fire. My whole being tensed and I squeezed my hand around the revolver. So I was too sweaty. Too sweaty, too hot. And I got in my eyes, and then, I don't know, I shot someone. (laughs) I killed a guy. Whoops. Yeah. Oops. Didn't mean to. Smash cut, he's in prison. And so, like, this guy is never named. He's never identified. I know somebody wrote a novel about this character. Yeah, there's a a book uh, called The Merceau Investigation. Sure, yes. Uh, It's a retelling of The Stranger from the point of view of the murdered Arab's brother. Okay, okay. Uh, it came out in 2015. It's by uh, Kamel Daoud. Hmm. And he's a, yeah, so he is himself a, like a Francophone huh. Algerian writer. Okay, cool. And so like Camus simultaneously sort of important to him as like a writer who's who's doing this because he's like from the same background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But also he, he said this in, a, in a, an interview I read. Ever since the Middle Ages, the white man has the habit of naming Africa and Asia's mountains and insects, all the while denying the names of the human beings they encounter. By removing their names, they render banal murder and crimes. Uh, by claiming your own name, you're also making a claim of your humanity and thus the right to justice. Cool. So I think the rest of The Stranger is going to be about, well, what happens to Merceau after he does this thing to this guy who doesn't even have a name? Yep. And what Dawood is is asking is like, why is that the only thing we're worried about? <laughs> yup. Yeah. And and so. you can you like the most generous reading of that is, I think Camus being like, look at how callously we are treating, you know, the people who are from this region of the world. Like that, yeah. you know, there is a metaphorical reading there, I think, but it is not the only thing the book is interested in. Um, mm-hmm. All the jail stuff, like worked for me and yet in a like wow this is bad prison bad uh nobody should go through this awful and yet the book's like but he did kill a man for no reason (laughs) right um you know the police investigation where they're like actually interviewing him has some like classic hard-boiled imagery in it like you know there's like a single lamp in a room and Marceau's like I've seen this in books before this is weird Mm-hmm. Um and one, <laughs> there's a magistrate, I think it's a magistrate. I don't think it's the cop. It might be the cop who's interviewing him, and he keeps trying to be like, "Well, don't you believe in God? Like, how could you, how could you do this? Like, I'm a Christian man. Like, I can't believe you'd do this. But maybe you could seek forgiveness." And he like pulls a crucifix out of a drawer and is like waving it in his face, uh-huh. and he's like, "If you don't, if you don't believe in God." then my belief is meaningless and my life is meaningless. And it's like, do you want my life to be meaningless? <laughs> Just outstanding, outstanding mm-hmm. stuff in this mm-hmm. book. Um, but then he says, on my way out, I was even going to shake the policeman's hand, but just in time, I remembered that I had killed a man. So he he starts like uh, perceiving of himself as a criminal and as somebody who's done something wrong which is tough for him in prison because he says, when I was first imprisoned, the hardest thing was that my thoughts were those still of a free man. Yeah. 
And that that vein of of observation in the book and the details of like how time passes and starts to get slippy of how the like I get slippery, slippy, hmm, you know. <laughs> Whoops. Uh-huh. Uh, but that, like, the only thing he has to read is this, like, half of a Czech newspaper article that was stuffed in his bed by mistake, and it's mm-hmm. this, like, horrible crime, and so that's the only thing he can think about. Uh, all that stuff is very, like, prison bad. How could we let anyone be in prison? Mm-hmm. And I thought that's what the novel was going to focus on, and then it was like, what if there was a trial now, too? <laughs> so what's the, tri- what's the trial like? What are we doing? What- what are we doing here? So he's been in prison, I think, for like a year, maybe like 11 months or so. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't really know what anybody thinks about his case in the outside world. Like he has a lawyer who he does see kind of regularly. He he passes time by thinking about his lawyer's different ties uh-huh. every time he shows up. Uh <laughs> He doesn't realize like his, like his physical ties yeah. or just like his relationships. No, his different like pattern okay. ties. <laughs> All right. Um and he doesn't realize that kind of the press has taken an interest in his case. There the next case to be decided is a parricide, the, the murder of a father. Um okay. it's some like, you know, morally horrific crime to take, you know, to kill your own relation sort of thing. And yet there are people who are like, "Well, this one also seems bad." Mostly because they sent reporters to cover the parasite and there was other stuff to cover. Like, why not cover this one, too? Sure. Mm-hmm. He remarks, this This was like, oh, is this what he means by being a stranger? So he like he doesn't really know what's going to go on in the trial. He He's not really interested in it. Yeah, uh, he, doesn't se- he doesn't seem to be able to muster much interest in much anything. So, like, he goes into this, like, hot, stuffy courtroom. He's always complaining about how hot everything is. Uh, I mean, he got so hot that he shot a guy. Yeah, it's I true. Guess. Uh, at one point yes. in the trial, they're like, do you have anything to say for yourself? And he's like, your honor, it was so hot. <laughs> um, but he he remarks that everyone in the courtroom who has been there more than once, like kind of all knows each other. I lean on this metaphor a lot, but it felt it felt very... Um, Wolf and Sheepdog Looney Tunes, where like okay, you do use this a lot, but that's where it will allow it. It's a potent metaphor. Um, <laughs> it's why it's a good Looney Tune. But he he talks about like, uh, the press and the judge and the lawyers are all like welcoming each other and like coming over and saying hi, even though they're ostensibly on different sides, um, of the trial. And he's like, I've never been here before, and that. Is we and so I don't fit in at all, and this feels uh-huh. very strange. Um, that felt very powerful. He, his description of the jury is fun. He says, It was then I noticed a row of faces in front of me, they were all looking at me. I realized they were the jury, but I can't say what distinguished one from another. I had just one impression I was sitting across from a row of seats on a streetcar, and all these anonymous passengers were looking over the new arrival to see if they could find something funny about him. I knew it was a silly idea since it wasn't anything funny they were after, but a crime. There mm-hmm. isn't much difference, though. In any case, that was the idea that came to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, he doesn't really have much of a, t- a defense because he does. He did kill that guy. He and- did kill the guy, and I mean his defense so far is just like, man, let me let me tell you, it was so hot. <laughs> like you yeah, don't even understand. And I guess his lawyer is basically like, we don't really see any attempt to paint it as an act of self-defense 
Yeah. His lawyer is mostly spent trying to fight back against the prosecutor whose entire case is like, this guy has no morality. He didn't cry at his mom's funeral. Mm -hmm. And then you realize that the prosecutor has dug up everything from the first few chapters of the book Uh and is bringing it detail by detail in front of the jury to be like, well, he smoked at the vigil and he had coffee, (laughs) but he didn't take it black. Uh And no one saw him cry over the casket that he didn't even want to look in. Basically, like, painting him as this reprehensible, morally repugnant misanthrope. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It reminded me, Andrew, Mm -hmm. of the trial from Chrono Trigger. (laughs) Where you don't know. You're playing this video game... And you're like running around like, oh, there's a bag. I'm gonna see what's in the bag. Or, yeah, there's oh. like there's a there's an opening like level to this game yeah. before it starts up where you're like at a fair uh, and you are running around and you're just like doing stuff. And the first time you're playing this game, by all yep. appearances, it's just like random stuff that's happening. Yes. And then uh, hours later, How, in it's the game, so smart that it's hours later because you never you're not gonna restart the game to make better choices. Yeah. And yeah, so hours later you were at this trial and it turns out that like every single little mini game that you played and every like person that you bumped into and every like uh, every uh, menu choice that you made, like it's all it all comes back to haunt you. And it doesn't actually end up affecting how the storyline proceeds overall, though, if you do play it through and you and you do everything right and. (laughs) And all the jurors side with you, you do get like cool extra stuff in yes. the prison cell that they yes. throw you in anyway. <laughs> well, or if you do it really, really bad, they will take you right to like a capital punishment machine and you yeah. have to escape from there. <laughs> but this felt this reminded me of the Millennium Fair sequence in the trial because it was like, wow, I didn't really know that the part where he shared a cigarette with the caretaker was gonna be super yeah. important. Yeah, yeah. And he is experiencing it as like, I, w- I was just trying to live through the day of my mother's funeral. Mm-hmm. And these guys are saying that every choice I made was morally repugnant. Um, and it builds to the prosecutor saying, like, this is basically as bad as the person who killed his dad that's coming next. Uh-huh. And uh, honestly, it's so bad that it paved the way for that man to do what he did. So we should kill this guy. Mm-hmm. Like, we shouldn't just lock him up. We should kill him. Yeah. Uh, which is very, uh, a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. <laughs> so then the last part of the book is him kind of waiting on, you know, what we would cl- typically call death row, um, waiting for, you know, his execution. They're going to decapitate him. Um and there's a couple sections in here that hit me in my like abolish the death penalty feels mm-hmm. where he's talking about the certainty of the verdict mm-hmm. and how like what does he say <laughs> the the verdict um after all there really was something ridiculously out of proportion between the verdict such with such certainty was based on and the imperturbable march of events from the moment the verdict was announced the fact that the sentence had been read at eight o'clock at night and not at five the fact that it could have been an entirely different one the fact that it had been decided by men who changed their underwear the fact that it had been handed down (laughs) in the name of some vague notion called the french or german or chinese people all of it seemed to detract from the seriousness of the decision and then he also goes on to talk about like how it sucks that it's such a final decision because even one in a thousand people, you know, making up for their crimes might be worth it. So like, why don't you 
at this point he's just spitballing he's like why don't you come up with a concoction that only kills you 90% of the time and sure. then if you survive you can like make up for what you did or something mm-hmm. um and all of that like i can see it as just pure i can read it as kind of pure anti death penalty but you can also read it as just like there is not as much certainty in the world as you think there is how dare you make big decisions based on the idea that you can be certain about anything. Sure. Um, and I think what he's getting at too, is that like when he talks about the French society, cause they do say that in the sentencing, they're like in the name of French society, you're going to die or something uh-huh. mm-hmm. um, that like society, the machinery that we all exist in is eager to meaning make is like eager to ascribe meanings to things. Mm-hmm. And here is an example where that will then like kill a man for what some of the people who try to defend him in the trial say is just like bad luck, bad chance. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to to he did kill a man. He did <laughs> kill a guy. I'm not and, and it's not that. and like you can you can do I can believe bad luck, bad chance maybe if you're just like it's hot and you're confused and you have a gun for some reason and you shoot <laughs> a guy. I think once you like put four more slugs in him when he's laying dead on the ground, you he doesn't stop have an answer having for that. The, yeah. yeah, you stop having the the oopsie doopsie defense. Yeah. And, <laughs> so, and so I do think the book has like an inherent tension in the prison and trial sequences where you can really see the, some of the injustices that are happening to him where he doesn't have agency over what's going on. He doesn't even understand what's going on. And yet you have to wrestle that with like, but he did kill that guy and then shot yeah. him four more times. So mm-hmm. like where, where is the limit of your empathy for universal rights or, or something like that? Sure. Um, and then the last section is him talking. A chaplain has been visiting him, and boy, howdy, does this man not want to be visited by a chaplain? <laughs> he does not want to talk about God at all. Mm-hmm. He thinks that is a waste of his time, which he knows is limited. Mm-hmm. He's been thinking about the fact that he's going to die, and how, like, when you really think about it, when does it matter that you die? You're going to die. Just just think on that one let that one bake in your noodle for a second if you're gonna do it anyway why does it matter when you do it yeah why would I it mean, matter because like because there's more because you could do, there's more stuff i guess well don't tell me so that he's gonna there's punch more stuff you, you could do it more you. time okay <laughs> and the the chaplain tries to get him to like you know be okay with people believing in god and it it bubbles over into him attacking the chaplain and like yelling at him for trying to have certainty in a world that is uncertain um the gall of the, of, of the thing yes and, <laughs> and he's like uh but it does come down to this i think this is maybe where it gets a little bit overlappy with existentialism what does he say um and yet none of his certainties was worth one hair of a woman's head he wasn't even sure he was alive because he was living like a dead man this is Marceau talking about the um chaplain Whereas it looked as if I was the one who'd come up empty-handed, but I was sure about me, about everything, surer than he could ever be, sure of my life and sure of the death I had waiting for me. Yes, that was all I had, but at least I had as much of a hold on it as it had on me. And so he does, like, I think there is this kind of essential individualism, which I think lines up with existentialism a little bit um, in terms of you being responsible for the meaning you make in your life. But that's not quite where this guy lands. Because sure. then he thinks about his mom a bit more. He thinks about how it was kind of weird that she like 
got sent to a home and then decided to make a bunch of new friends. <laughs> and he's like, you know what? I don't begrudge her that. She knew death was coming and why not kind of just, why not live a new life and uh-huh. rebel against the indifference of the world? And so he be, comes. I mean, it beats doing nothing, right? It does. Like, I think that's, <laughs> it, it is a version of living in the moment that I think he had discounted. Uh-huh. Um, because he does, you know, he wants to be, he wants to be in a, temperature controlled room smoking a cigarette while a comedic movie plays and he's having sex like that is what this man wants and then this is this is what we all want but it's there's there are other things also <laughs> so his conclusion and this is the final like i guess evolution of his character that i i had i had to think about to under to see it as such for the first time in that night alive with signs and stars i opened myself to the gentle indifference of the world finding it so much like myself So like a brother, really, I felt that I had been happy and that I was happy again. For everything to be consummated, for me to feel less alone, I had only to wish that there be a large crowd of spectators the day of my execution and that they greet me with cries of hate. That's the end of the book. (laughs) Jesus Christ. So. Why does he want that? Because we're all... The the world is indifferent to all of us, Andrew. Uh-huh. So why don't we all get together about it? And sell and you know, it's gonna end sometime. So we and can just, just like celebrate it by yelling at a guy. Yeah. Huh. It's really wild. It, yeah. I think moving to a to a worldview that somehow values coexistence is like big for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas before he's very like, I don't know, man. <laughs> If you want me to help you, you know, make a lady mad, I'll do that. Whatever. I'll uh, write a letter. Sure. Um, it's a weird book. It's not a long book. Um, and I think some of that may... and it's, So it's got like the four main sections. I wonder what section you would have had to read in a class because I feel like each section could like... You could teach to a bunch of different things. It, it's with super it. possible that it was... Uh, that it was another Kimu entirely yeah, sure. as well. Yeah. But I, but I, I do what, what I mean by that is like, it could be the prison section and you could have a really interesting conversation about the life of someone in solitary confinement. You, it could uh, be the funeral section and it could be a, a, a portrayal of grief or not grief or the way the world is, just moves on without you. Mm-hmm. It could be the, indu- the injustice of the trial, or you could just go ham on the, I hate you and your God speech at the end. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, and I think Ward talks about this in the translator's note, like the second half of the book starts to feel a bit more lyrical, particularly the mm-hmm. last section has a bit more of the, this is a French philosopher writing energy that you might what, expect coming in. Can you explain to me how that like manifests? What's the difference? Um, Even in just the language that I just read, this whole like, the night alive with signs and stars, the mm, gentle sure. indifference of the world. He also, when he's... Compl- it's a little purple. A little purpler. Little, it's purpler, yes, is what I mean. And the, and the first section has a bit more of kind of the um, clinical journalistic descriptive writing. Sure. A lot more, you know, short sentences. This is just what happened. Except when the sun is trying to destroy him. And that's when he gets very poetic. <laughs> But, you know, who has never felt that way before? Yeah, the sun is always out to get all of us. <laughs> um, so I think that's the stranger. 
the guy lived a life that was Merceau strange. or Camus? What? Merceau or Camus? I was, I was thinking of Merceau. I, it makes me interested to compare this work to later Camus because I, I don't quite see his. I know I can't. It, it is harder for me to connect the dots to what I know some of his political beliefs are uh-huh. with this one. Mm-hmm. Even though if I think really really hard, maybe I can see them. It's like a magic eye. Yeah. So I don't know. Be interested if other folks have read Camus. Write in. Tell me what you like. I've got. I mean, I'm not. A, I'm not a philosopher. You know, I didn't. It wasn't a philosophy major in in college. But I've got to imagine there are a lot of guys who. I mean, there there are certainly guys who like stuck with one through their whole <laughs> sure. lives. But I'm sure there are others who like went through yeah multiple different worldviews as they as they went through different times in their lives. Yeah, or like drilled down on it, like kind of honed it. It wasn't this. It's this. Oh, it wasn't yeah. that. It's this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the stranger, Andrew. Strange. Pretty. It's, it's, there have been fewer stranger things than the stranger. Yeah. Five seasons? Anyway, send us an email. <laughs> OverduePod at gmail.com. If you have ever been this strange, uh, hit us up on social media at OverduePod. Thanks to all the people reaching out in the last week. Allison, Jake, Keith, Holly, Christina, Robert, Tim, uh, Rosali, Emily, Steph, and many more. Thanks to Nick Larandris, who composed our theme music. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? OverduePodcast.com is our internet website. We have links to the books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read. We also have our schedule up for this month, if you haven't checked it out yet. Um, and we've got a Patreon page, patreon.com slash OverduePod. Get bonus episodes early. Get episodes of our latest long read project early. Uh, that is currently Stop Homer Time, a reading of Emily Wilson's The Iliad translation yeah and yeah also access to our discord and a few other things you just and when you do that you support the show financially you keep our children in childcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it's a thing we really appreciate when people do so thank you to everybody who's already donating and if you want to donate again that's patreon.com slash overdue pod next up percy jackson and the sea of monsters can't sure. wait to read about these monsters in the sea a lot of teen demigods. Mm-hmm. That's all the I know. sequel to Percy Jackson and the Olympians. That's that the Lightning Thief. The Lightning Thief. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the one we read for episode, episode six hundred, I believe. Ah, yes, six hundred. That makes it easy to remember. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to get back in there. It's it's a you know it's an interesting you know young adult series. I think we're gonna yeah. have fun with. So yeah, tune yeah, in yeah. for that. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And until we talk to you next time, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.